So the first day of our retreat, for many people, it's not the easiest of days. Usually come here and in all that adjustment and attempting to settle in and all of that, we're met with many different mind states that aren't necessarily very comfortable or easy to be with, the tiredness and the restlessness and the kind of uncertainty and maybe some doubt and anxiety and thinking about things that have just happened that we left yesterday or the day before and all the things that are we're still dealing with or things that we think we need to be dealing with and that we didn't deal with. <laughs> you know, all these uh, influences from the recent past. You know, just this process that we're in today of letting go. Letting go and coming more fully into being here, being here at Spirit Rock, being here on the retreat. We feel that. We feel the influences of all that has been set in motion before we came here as we let go. We also are confronted with lots of our ideas about what is what we think is supposed to be happening today. You know, what we'd like to have happen today. And so when all these different kinds of more difficult mind states arise, we can be confronted with our ideas that say, well, this, I'm supposed to be feeling differently. And I wanted to just kind of throw this question out to you. Just maybe somebody could just, some people can just sort of say one word or two words. Are there any experiences that you would have liked to have happened today that didn't happen? You just... uh, throw a few things out. <laughs> what would you, what were you looking for today that wasn't there necessarily? Bliss. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> There's honesty. <laughs> bliss. Yeah, bliss. What else? No body pain. No body pain, right. Kind of the, the ease of being in our body. Yeah, what else? Equanimity. Equanimity. <laughs> we like equanimity. <laughs> Yeah. What else? No unmade calls haunting me. (laughs) Yes, unmade calls that haunt us. That is something I've heard a few times today. These calls as unfinished business, wanting that to be done, finished with. What else? Somebody talked about peace. I can't make myself have peace today. (laughs) As if these states were so accessible, you know. Wouldn't wouldn't it be great if we could just sort of snap our fingers and here they are, all these qualities of consciousness, of our heart, of our being. It's not like that. So one of the first things that happens when we come on retreat is we're confronted with what's true and what's real. (laughs) We're confronted with our experience the way it is. And oftentimes, depending on how we are with that, we can feel resistance, we can feel conflict, we can feel struggle, we can not like it, aversion, which adds to more difficulty in our mind. So this isn't unusual for a first day of a retreat. And this is very much what we work with. We call this the old 
phrase, grist for the mill, or one I like better is manure for Bodhi. And Bodhi, <laughs> Bodhi is the, the Bodhi tree. That's the tree that the Buddha sat under when he was uh, enlightened. So Bodhi is the symbol for freedom. So manure, <laughs> the fertilizer, you know, that helps us wake up to what's true, to what's real. We remove all of our usual busyness, all the stimulation, the things that we're usually engaged in, and we're left with ourselves. We're left with what's here, without all that new stuff that's usually added on top of our daily experience. We're in our daily life, we're usually processing all the new information and the new stimulation that's coming in each day. But here today, there wasn't much new coming in, except for, the, for some of us, the, the, the actual technique and some of the practices. But in terms of the outside world, not imposing in the same way. And so we're still kind of working with all that's still there for us that we haven't completed, that we haven't finished. As we go on in a few more days of the retreat, that starts to drop away. We become more and more engaged in the immediacy of this retreat. But this is very much on the first day of the retreat. This is what, we, what we're encountered with. There is this lovely um, Pali word. Um, I spoke to you last night with Pali, the Pali language that the teachings came to us in. And one of my favorite is uh, dukkha dukkha. And those of you who know dukkha, dukkha is the word for suffering and, uh, or this unsatisfactory nature of our existence. And uh, so dukkha, when the, when the Buddha is speaking about the, what these teachings are about, if they're about dukkha and the freedom from dukkha. So suffering and the freedom from that suffering or the dissatisfaction, the freedom from that dissatisfaction. But dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> is what we encounter on the first day of a retreat. So dukkha dukkha is really one of the first insights that we have because dukkha dukkha is the pain of having a body and the pain of having a mind. Dukkha dukkha, double dukkha. <laughs> because this is the nature of our existence. We have a mind, we have a body, and it's painful. Because for the most part, they're out of control. <laughs> and as much as we would like to be able to control our mind and control the nature of our body, we can't. And so one of the first insights that we have as we practice is just how frustrating that is, that we can't make our mind stay quiet or stay in place. We can't make our bodies not hurt or not feel the, the unpleasant sensations running through. They do, those arise on their own. They rise uninvited. They leave uninvited. There's this whole kind of uh, a flow of experience that we can't really control in the immediacy, in the moment. But of course, much of the meditative training is how to come into a relationship with that dukkha dukkha so that we're not adding more dukkha, <laughs> we're not adding more, uh, accumulating more on top of it and creating more contraction and more compression and more pressure 
this is really the p possibility for us, is to find a way to be free of our own tendencies, of our own uh, inclinations to make things a whole lot worse. And I think that people can probably understand what I'm referring to. <laughs> How can we actually keep backing up out of that resistance and that conflict and that struggle so that we're not meeting our experience within that way? But there's the possibility of meeting our experience with more balance, with more allowing, with more equanimity, with more love and compassion. This is so much of what we explore in the teachings is how to do this. Because for the most part, we don't know. We don't, first of all, we don't know what we're doing. We just often find ourselves in this dukkha dukkha with adding more dukkha and dukkha dukkha on top of the dukkha and find ourselves in some kind of compression and don't know how we got there. And then when we start to learn about how this actually happens, we can begin to unravel that. It's really like I just got this image of the ball, a ball of string, you know, and it's just really wrapped up tight. And as we learn the tools and the practices and the techniques, we begin to unravel that ball and it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Eventually, it completely dissolves, completely disappears. And I think Tija mentioned that he had a dissolving practice for us up his sleeve. And so I think it has something to do with this kind of <laughs> dissolving the, the compression that we usually experience within our mind and within, within our body, this dukkha dukkha. I think you're going to remember this one, <laughs> dukkha dukkha. These, these little um, Pali phrases are very helpful for us in terms of how to understand or, or know what, what we're experiencing. Sometimes when you're just in that state where you, everything just feels like it's all kind of agitated and restless and hurting and painful, and we can just say, ah, oh, dukkha dukkha. There it is, you know, sort of a, a way of a kind of surrendering. It's a, a one level of surrender. We just go, okay, it's out of my control. There's not much I can do if I keep worrying about it or try to change it or be in conflict with it or get mad at myself and struggle. I'm just adding more to it. And at some point we have that recognition, we have that awareness, and as we see that, we see what we're doing when we're adding up, we're adding more tight strings to the ball, we can, oh yeah, I don't need to do that. I can stop doing that. And we start to feel a little more release. We, we feel a little bit more freedom from our own inclinations, our own patterns, our own habits and tendencies. But even with all this that we, come, that we meet when we come into a situation like this, where we don't have many distractions and we don't have much impinging on us and we're just kind of left with all that's here, even though oftentimes it's difficult or painful, it's interesting that there's something that keeps us going. I I, I'm always impressed and always inspired that 
people stay on retreats. <laughs> you know, people will mention to me, you know, I, I, half of me, you know, part of me really wants to flee, you know, really wants to go. It's really hard to be here. People talk about that, but rarely does anybody ever leave. Very rarely. I mean, people stay with it. They hang in there. And isn't that curious? Isn't it interesting that with all the, the pain in the body, the agitation in the mind, and all that we've got going on, we sit and we walk and we sit and we walk. And that usually has to do with touching into some kind of faith, some kind of faith in the practice, some kind of faith in the teachings, or in the teachers, or in somebody that you've met, or somebody that you've known who has gone through some kind of transformation, or some kind of evidence, maybe even in your own experience, where you've seen some kind of shift, some kind of transformation. You say, yeah, it's really worth it. It really makes sense. I got to keep doing this. I got to keep going. We touch into something, and sometimes if it's not directly, the evidence isn't in your own direct experience. You may have seen it somewhere. You, there's something that's keeping you here. There's something that's inside that's saying, yes, keep going, keep going. And in an interesting way, in all beings, all sentient beings, all conscious beings, there is an innate urge. There is a natural urge towards happiness. In all beings, there's a, there's a pull, there's a, a, a force that leads us, that guides us towards an experience of happiness or fulfillment or gratification or satisfaction. We're looking for that. It's, it's inherent in our being. It's not that it's only in some beings and not in others. It's in all beings. All beings want to be happy. You know, when I, when I talk about this, I always think of the little ants that are crawling around my kitchen, you know, and, and, and they are the tiniest little creatures, but you just go near them, you know, because I don't kill them. I, I just, you know, try to move them in another direction, you know. And, and they'll just, like, stand up on their back legs, and they'll all, you know, they'll be very aware that, you know, there's danger, there's threat, and then they scurry around. And, you know, they want to be happy. <laughs> They're looking for some kind of satisfaction. You know, the teeniest little creatures, little sentient creatures. And, and so... Every being has this drive. The difficulty is that we get confused where we're going to find that happiness. You've heard the whole, the old adage, we look in the wrong places. We look in places that we think are going to bring that, but they don't actually bring the fulfillment that we're looking for. And usually the first place that we look is in some kind of sensory experience an experience of a beautiful sight, or a sound, or a taste, or some nice feeling on our skin, or smell, or whatever, that, that's happy. That's going to bring us happiness. And if I get enough of those experiences all together, then I'll be happy. 
if I get enough pleasurable experiences, experiences that actually make me feel good, or if I don't have the sensual experiences, then I can kind of fabricate experiences in my own mind. I can fantasize. I can fantasize being in a really beautiful and pleasurable experience on an island or with somebody who I really love. Or I can remember. I can go back into my memory, different pockets of my own mind, because maybe there isn't the availability of the immediate sensory experience right here. So I can just fabricate them. Isn't that wonderful? So I can just kind of keep my finger on the pulse of pleasure all the time if I could, if it really worked, right? <laughs> the problem is it doesn't work. Fortunately, it doesn't work, because if it did work, I don't think any of us would really get free, because we would just get lost in experience, out, outer experience, experience of the sens sensory world, and, the and, and then the fabrications of our imaginations and our own mind. I don't think we would find what's called the happiness of the Buddha, or the happiness of the gods, the goddesses, the, 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 the kinis. You know, a happiness that is independent of all experience, a happiness that has nothing to do with the worldly experiences, the conditions of this world, of our sensory experiences, or anything that our mind can fabricate. That happiness, that happiness is much more profound, is much greater than any kind of happiness that any of us can even imagine. The mind can't even begin to fabricate or understand the kind of happiness that's possible for us as human beings. This deep, profound gratification of being itself, of our nature itself, of our essential being, who we are, and our most fundamental ground. It has nothing to do with any kind of experience that we're having. So our practice is to turn inward. All the, all the ancient practices, all the wisdom practices, they all turn us in rather than out. Because our orientation is to go out, to go out to those, those, those sights and sounds and tastes and smells and all the sensual pleasures on our skin and the, all the wonderful things we can imagine, that we keep going out, out, out. And we go the wrong direction. So all the, the practices are turning us back. Turn back, turn back, turn back, turn in. And so meditative practices close our eyes. We turn our attention inward to see what's here. Not just so that we are confronted with a painful body and a painful mind, dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Not just so we're sitting in dukkha, but so that by confronting what's here and not being um, uh, uh, thrown off by our, what we find here, but we stay here, we stay present, we stay connected, we stay engaged, we go deeper, we go beyond those conditions of our mind and our body. We touch something else that has nothing to do with that. We go deeper, deeper, deeper. So this is the direction. This, this is sometimes also called, uh, rather than just the urge for happiness, it's sometimes called the enlightenment urge. We have a, 
we, we, there's a, there is an urge for freedom. But this is actually very rare. Usually it's the, it's the urge to be happy or to be comfortable, to find ease in our life, to find some kind of security. But sometimes, for some people, it opens up even deeper to the urge for enlightenment, for awakening, for freedom. But this is a whole nother leap because this takes courage. You have to go through, we have to go through our desire for comfort, our desire for ease, our desire for pleasure. Because on the path, on the path to enlightenment, on the spiritual path, we will meet the pain. We have to. That's the only way we can begin to find freedom because we have to be free with everything, all conditions, all the conditions. We call it the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. The nature of this life is that. It's never going to be one thing or the other. It's not going to be all pleasure because that's not how it is. We call it the Dharma. The Dharma, this beautiful word, the Dharma. The Dharma means the law of the way things are, the natural laws of this universe in which we live. And the laws are that sometimes experience is joyful and sometimes experience is painful and oftentimes it's in between, but it moves on that continuum. And as we open to life and we meet life as it is, we open to the way it is. We open to the way it is. And it's that opening that we experience the freedom because we're no longer in resistance to the painful. We're no longer grabbing on to the pleasant. But we're able to allow the movement of life, the expression of life as it is, and find a place to rest, to settle within ourselves that gives us maybe, we might say, a refuge, an inner refuge, a place we can rest, we can settle within ourselves that is still, that is quiet, that is peaceful, that it's not, that's not in opposition with the conditions of this world. This enlightenment drive, there's a a Pali word called Dhamma Chanda, Dhamma Chanda, which is a, it means um, energy, energy for the Dharma. Dhamma, dar, Dhamma is the Pali word for Dharma. Dharma is Sanskrit, Dhamma is Pali. And Chanda is energy, it's the energy we feel. So the energy for the Dharma. And that's, that's what we awaken to as we are on the path, is we get excited. We start to feel a sense of urgency, an inspiration for what's possible for us as human beings. We touch into something, and it just grows and grows and grows. And at a certain point, that's the only thing that we're interested in. It becomes the center of our life. The Dharma becomes the center. It informs everything that we do. So once we start to feel that urge, once we start to feel that energy, we look for a path. We look for practice, a practice or practices. That's the natural inclination. And then we have 
at this time in history, we have so much available to us. So much has opened up for us in the last 50 years. So many different Buddhist traditions and uh, different healing practices. And uh, we, have, we have so much in, in other ancient wisdom traditions that we can draw on right now. Sometimes it can get a little bit confusing. Um, it can feel like a real potpourri out there. Um, but, but for some of us, we find a path. And it's very helpful when we find a path, when we find a practice, we actually stay with that for a while so that we can become more masterful and find some expertise with a particular practice because every one of these ancient lineages go very deep. They're very, very profound. And so the one that we are walking here, one of the ones we're walking here is this, uh, the path of the Buddha. Buddha Dharma, Buddha Dharma, the Dharma of the Buddha. And what we practice, the actual practice, comes from one of the discourses that the Buddha gave 2,500 years ago when he walked the earth and, and taught. He walked for 40 years, taught for 40 years. We have 10,000 discourses that have been translated from Pali that we can draw on to understand what the Buddha actually taught. And what we practice here, the basic foundation practice, is from one or two discourses that the Buddha gave. And the primary one is called the Satipatthana Sutta. And Sati is mindfulness. Uh, Patana is foundation. So the Satipatthana Sutta, or discourse, means the four foundations of mindfulness, or the foundations of mindfulness in which there are four. And so we practice mindfulness according to this particular discourse. And the first, there's four foundations. The first foundation is the mindfulness of body. And so we've been working, that's where we start. And much of the um, exploration that we're doing on this retreat is the body, mindfulness of the body. That means both breath body, the body of the breath, and the whole body. And that's the essential foundation practice so that we actually more and more have a ground of our mindfulness. We have a ground for awareness, which means that we actually arrive here. Because if, we're, if our mind is back with last week's events or last 30 years of events or the mind is planning the next month of events, or we're, we're, we're not really here. And so mindfulness of breath and body helps us. It's a support for us to arrive here more fully, to, to be more engaged here. And so the Jikong practice is a very important practice with breath and body to help us really fully arrive. This mindfulness, mindfulness, full, the mindful of breath, a mindful of the experience of the body. This first foundation that the Buddha taught. The second foundation that we work with and we'll be working with over the week is the, it's called the mindfulness of feeling. But feeling in this case means the, the awareness, the knowing of pleasant, unpleasant, and 
experience that's in between pleasant and unpleasant experience, the feeling tone of experience. And we'll t I'll talk about why this was such an important foundation for the Buddha that it became one of the four. It's significant in understanding the pathway to freedom. As we become more aware of the actual feeling in the body of these pleasant and unpleasant experiences. The third foundation is the found mindfulness of the mind or mental activity. So we have mindfulness of the body and breath, which is both uh, body and the sensations plus feeling, and then mindfulness of mind. So being mindful of what's happening at the level of our mental activity. And in that particular foundation, the Buddha also includes emotions. So because there's no, there's no difference between mental activity and the emotional life. They're fully connected. What we think is what we feel. What we feel is what we think. And we start to have more sense of this mind-body connection. And that's all in the third foundation when we study that. And then the fourth foundation is called mindfulness of what we might say mental qualities or uh, mindfulness of the Dharma. And this one's much more uh, com complicated in the sense that it actually talks about how we become free. It's really beginning to take our mindfulness of the first three foundations and, and pay attention to the actual mechanisms of, of transformation. So we are, that's, it's more of a wisdom kind of training where we actually start to notice what's happening in the mind and we work with those particular patterns of mind for transformation. And we become mindful of that, mindful of the Dharma. So this is it. This is the essential practice, these four foundations, and this is what we work with here from this particular discourse of the Buddha. So it's all found, our foundation of our practice is mindfulness, sati, sati. This natural clarity, natural clarity of our consciousness. It's not that we have to cultivate this mindfulness. Sometimes it's talked like that. We are already, we already have this capacity. Really what it is, we're, be, we're becoming familiar with this capacity to be aware. We're, we're this, this capacity to be mindful and how to use it. In the practice, we're actually drawing on this natural clarity and we direct this mindfulness. We, we take this awareness, this clarity, and we look at different objects of our perception. We look at our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and the, the different sense experiences, sight, sound, taste, smells, touch. We actually bring our mindfulness to our moment-to-moment -moment experience. In this way, mindfulness becomes functional. It's a tool. We can actually use mindfulness to deepen our understanding and for more discovery into the nature of things. We actually turn our attention towards what's happening in the moment so that we can know this experience. We can know what a smell is like. I can know what uh, seeing a beautiful flower is like. I can know and, and come in to understand those experiences that are happening, my feelings and my emotions and, and all that impacts me moment to moment to moment so that I can understand its nature. 
I can see, I can know what it is. And it begins to reveal, I begin to discover what this existence is really about. What is this? What is a smell? What is a sound? What is a taste? What is a feeling, a thought? They usually define our reality in such a fixed and limited way. Usually because we're looking for some way to be happy. So is that going to do it for me? Is that going to do it for me? We're very limited in, in the way that we approach our experience. But as we come more into a meditative way of being, we're interested in something much deeper, much more profound. It's like, what is it? Why am I here? Who am I? What is this existence? How did I find myself here? Why is it so hard? Why do I die? Why was I born? Why do I lose the things that I love, the people that I love? Why can't I have things the way I want them to be? Why can't I control my reality? How come I can't make things happen the way I want them to? We start to feel and sense how uncontrollable our reality is, and we feel the frustration. We can't make ourselves live forever. We can't have everything we want. We can't keep things that we love. We start to be confronted with this existence. And so by paying attention and being more present, we start to understand more deeply what is going on here. I mean, does anybody ask those kinds of questions? <laughs> I mean, when we start to be more present, it's like, of course, we really want to start to understand it. it we feel like we're in such a predicament. How did I get here anyhow? <laughs> So it all starts to open up for us. We start to awaken into these deeper truths about the nature of reality itself. So this mindfulness that is functional, and mindfulness has these different characteristics. When we are awake and mindful, we are in contact with our experience. So the characteristic of mindfulness as contactful it has the nature to be in contact with a sight or a sound or a taste or a smell. We can actually be in relationship with when we're mindful. Mindfulness also has the characteristic to know. I can actually know, yeah, there is a rose, there is a tree, there is a person that I love, there is something happening. I can actually make sense out of my experience. Mindfulness has the characteristic to be immediate. It's now. It's not something from the past. It's not something in the future. It's here now. This, this glass of water, I call it a glass of water, but I can go much, be much more subtle. It has all kinds of colors that are being reflected in it, and it moves, and it's fluid, and it's because this beautiful illuminated clear color and makes a sound. It's like fascinating. It's happening now. I'm not fabricating this. I'm not making it up. I could even drink it. <laughs> Very cool and kind of refreshing quality going down my throat. It's just it's all present now. I can't fabricate this. I mean, I could, but I sure wouldn't enjoy it as much as I'm enjoying it now. 
So this mindfulness, this brings us right here into the immediacy. And mindfulness also has the quality to be alert. Because when we're here, there is a quality of wakeful attention. Even if I'm feeling sleepy, and this is an interesting one that you've probably seen, even if you're sleepy or dull, you can know that. There's some quality of presence that can know the state of sleepiness. So there's an alertness, there's an immediacy, there's a contact with the sleepiness, there's a knowing, I'm sleepy. And there may be the knowing, I don't want to be sleepy. <laughs> I want to be more awake. And then the knowing and the, of the resistance or the frustration, and then the contact with the frustration, the immediacy with the frustration, the alertness with the frustration. That's all mindfulness. The knowing, the awareness, the presence with what's happening. Different. It has a whole other quality from the experience itself. There's sleepiness, but then there's the knowing of it, the mindfulness of it. We bring all these qualities, all these characteristics to the moment when we're here. One moment of mindfulness, one instant of mindfulness, is like a window through which we can see clearly for one moment. It may be in the next moment we're not seeing clearly at all. We might be completely lost in our thoughts and our agitation and all that, but in one moment we see clearly, oh yeah, I'm tired. There's tiredness here. That's mindfulness. And in that moment, we have the capacity to see things the way they are. This is all we're really talking about when we talk about mindfulness. It's not really exotic. It's not mystical. (laughs) It's not so far away. It's simply a moment where we are in contact. We are in relationship. We are engaged. We have some sense of our experience, mindful full, mindful of what's occurring. And this mindfulness is supported by another factor called concentration. So mindfulness and concentration work together. And concentration is, this, is a, a quality of mental one-pointedness. It means that it's the concentration that actually allows the attention to stay on the object long enough for us to actually know it. There may be a moment of mindfulness, but we'll slip right off into a thought or a, or a memory. But when we have the factor of concentration present, there's some sustaining of that attention. So it's kind of like we're rubbing the object or we're getting to know the object a little bit more. And it's a sustained attention, this one-pointedness. And so this increases the tool, sharpens the tool, for investigation and inquiry. So we get to know it even a little bit more. This concentration, if we we break down the word literally, it means to bring together or to draw together. And with mindfulness and concentration, really what's happening is we're unifying our experience so that our mind and our body are in the same place. And it's funny to say that, but when you really look at your experience and look at your experience today, 
Can you think of some times where your mind and your body were not in the same place? <laughs> I mean, maybe on the first day of a retreat, you might actually notice that quite often. <laughs> your mind is way far away, but your body's here, but you don't know it when your mind is way far away. So the mindfulness and the concentration have the, have the capacity to unify, to bring together, to draw together our experience into the present moment. So, we, so we're cultivating these, these uh, uh, qualities of, of, of mindfulness and concentration. And again, cultivation is a little bit of a funny word because they're already here. Mindfulness and concentration are aspects of our consciousness, our natural state. But we, there's so many habits and tendencies that cover that over, we don't have access to it. So we're actually working with the obstacles. That's what we're really doing. We're working with the obstacles so that they're not covering over the natural clarity of our, of our consciousness. So that we're actually having access to our natural state as it is. And as we keep polishing and keep working and keep uh, paying attention, we open and open and open so that radiance of our being, that luminosity of our being gets brighter and brighter and brighter. That's what happens as we become uh, more awake, more, more realized. Realized means more in touch with what's true. As we um, become more conscious, there's a, a luminosity, a brightness that we start to not only feel, but we start to emit. And that's why when you're around uh, great masters or you're around uh, 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 people like the Dalai Lama or um, people who, who, who really are quite evolved in their nature, you feel a certain radiant quality from them. And I have to say, in my own experience, a um, couple nights ago, I mean, this is personal for me, but maybe some other people had this experience of watching... Um, Obama, um, when he walked out on that platform in Chicago with uh, thousands and thousands of people uh, waiting for him for hours and hours in that moment where he walked out with his wife and his two children. And there was just something that just this, they were like four beings of light. And maybe this is my own kind of uh, <laughs> delusion. <laughs> I don't know, but I just, it was just these radiant beings, all four of them, the, the children and, the, and Michelle. And it was just like, just my heart just opened. And I felt so emotional in that, just that moment of seeing them. And I felt these, these are light beings. And it's, it's like that. It's like that when, when people reach a certain level of openness and clarity and authenticity in their own being, which I feel um, both of those people have, um, it's a, you can feel it. There's something that feels very uh, tangible about this, this level of, of transformation of being. So this mindfulness and concentration, they work together. We, we say there's, when we talk about mindfulness, which works with concentration, sometimes that's translated as remembering. 
re-membering, bringing the members back together. <laughs> remember, we, re we remember. Or recall, recalling. Mindfulness recalls the different parts. R-E-call, bringing together again. Or recollecting, 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 collecting all those disparate bits that are like, you know, back when we were three years old and six years old and last week and the future and, you know, who we think we are and who we think they are, you know, all those bits. And we bring them all, recollect them together, remember who we are or what's real. And there's a sense of wholeness again. There's a sense of coming together. We feel, ah, I'm back together. I feel whole again. I feel unified again. I feel like something's different now in my being. We might feel that um, when we practice for a while, we do qigong or, or other practices that you might do. They bring together the sense of, ah, you take a breath, I'm back. You know, sometimes you say, yeah, I was lost for a while. We might have been lost for a few weeks, you know, but then I'm back this mindfulness and concentration. So we're training, this is, this is, we call this mind training, this practice here of mindfulness and concentration. It's a mind training. And this mind training is what brings this capacity for sustained attention. So we can use this sharp tool of investigation and inquiry to go deeper and deeper into self-discovery. This is a, a quote from the Japanese Zen master Dogen. You know, when you talk about a Japanese Zen master, you have to change your voice. <laughs> Japanese Zen master Dogen. <laughs> you have to say it differently, right? <laughs> 13th century, he was the father of Zen, uh, the Zen lineage. And Dogen, this is translated from... Uh, the Japanese Dogen says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be awakened by all things. When we're not so self-involved, when we're not so self-preoccupied, when we are available to the totality of our experience, then we are touched by all things. We are intimate with all things. Another translation is, to, he says, to be awakened with all things means to be intimate with all things. We are in contact with the mindfulness that is contactful, that is immediate, that is intimate. We come into an intimacy with life. So beautiful, these teachings that, that point us towards the intimacy. Now, I'm going to just notice that more and more people are starting to lie down in the room as I'm talking about <laughs> awakefulness. So I'd, I'd like to actually ask you to sit back up, unless you have some kind of chronic pain or there's something that you're working with. Please, if you do have some sort of chronic difficulty, we do really want to encourage you to lie down because it's very good for your body. But otherwise, in a Dharma talk, when you're hearing these teachings, it's very important to hear and to listen in a way that you can be most receptive and most alert, because these teachings don't go in at a mental level. 
It's not like we're just sort of hearing something uh, conceptual or a story, but this is something we're talking about, something that has to go in very deep. So it requires a certain kind of stance of attention and listening. It requires some mindfulness and concentration. And so the posture really can support that. So as we practice with these qualities of our mindfulness and our concentration, what this brings is another important quality that I've mentioned at different times, this quality of openness. Openness. We come, become open to our experience. And this openness is like emptying a cup of old water. We empty our mind of old concepts and beliefs, ideas, and we make room for what's new. And I often read this quote from uh, one of our great uh, Thai masters, Ajahn Chah, uh, who is uh, one of the great forest uh, Thai masters who passed away uh, within our lifetime about 20 years ago. And when he was asked what the greatest hindrance was for his students, he said, opinions, views, and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. He says, it's like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions, then you will see. So what he means, you empty your mind of the old ideas, of the old concepts, of the old belief systems, and then we can see. And so this openness, as we open to what's here, we open to the immediacy of our experience, we're also letting go of our old ideas as much as we can. And we come into something that's new and fresh, something that we may not understand at all because we're not bringing in our conceptual mind. We're not bringing in our old ideas and our old frameworks, our old paradigms. We're saying, I'm here now. Let me see what I can understand. What, let, let me see what I can learn. What's new here? This is very much a learning model or a dis model of discovery of what's new. Otherwise, we're just carrying around the old baggage. And it gets heavy and stale and boring and uninteresting and time to clean them out. <laughs> Maybe throw them away altogether. Don't even carry any baggage anymore. A quote from another Roshi. He said, those who are awake live in a state of constant amazement. Constant amazement. Every moment is something new. Every moment. Ah, haven't seen that before. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's great. They, that brings new insights, fresh discoveries, kind of almost like a breakthrough, a breakthrough in our old ways of seeing and ways of knowing. My teacher, Hamid Ali, the, the founder of the Diamond Heart School that I'm engaged with, he has this lovely uh, uh, quote. 
He says, we want to open the wrapping of the gift because we want to see what's inside. We're curious. You know, so we're like little kids opening up the, oh, there's a gift here. I want to see what's inside. It's like as we become more connected to our experience and more in touch, we have that kind of childlike eagerness or that, that childlike curiosity about everything. Life is like that when we're not carrying around our, our old uh, a cup filled with stale water. And this is our natural state. This is our natural essence of who we are. Peeling away that which clouds our vision, that, that which veils, that, that, that which covers over what's true, what's real. And what's true and real is right here. Right here. This glass of water. <laughs> It's real and true. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to go far. It's not, sometimes we think it's a long, long, long journey. (laughs) And it can feel like that. I mean, ultimately it is because there's just constant opening and opening and opening and more to see and more to discover. That's the journey. But the journey gets interesting and adventurous. But to actually arrive here, the journey to now, isn't actually that difficult. Are you here now? (laughs) Just taste it now. Are you here now? It's real. I mean, if you have a sense of your body sitting here and you're you're in contact with what I'm talking about and and you know who's in the room, you know you're at Spirit Rock, you're um, aware of how you're feeling in your body and your mind, you're here. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> this, is all we're, this is all we're trying to achieve here. <laughs> it's not something too exotic. Sometimes these teachings can seem so mystical, so esoteric. But the path is right here. It's a journey to now. It's a journey to here. That's why I was saying in the instructions in the walking meditation this morning, there is no other destination. You know, that's why we need to contain the path. So you're just walking back and forth, because if you're going for that stroll, you might think that you're going somewhere. Or you gotta get, you know, you gotta get your walk in for that day or something. You know, no, we're not going anywhere. It's the journey to here, the journey to now. So it's this openness and the not knowing, the sense of freshness as we meet the moment that really makes room for our deeper wisdom to come forth. These really are the teachings of wisdom. These are wisdom teachings. Or we might say they're teachings of wisdom and compassion because you can't have wisdom without compassion. So as we open, as we develop as we transform. The heart opens, the mind opens, the belly opens, and we come more and more into a place of connection with our own wisdom, with our own love, with our own understanding about the way things are. 
And then we touch what's called Dhammoja, another Pali word, beautiful words that we have, Dhammoja, which means the essence of Dharma. Dharmoja, this vital and essential nature of our being. The teachings being, are pointing us, pointing to us to that vitality, that wakeful, brilliant, luminous quality of our being that we are. And we're empowered by these qualities because these are qualities of our awake mind. They're qualities that are already here. And we come into a deeper connection with knowing ourselves and who we are. And not in a limited way, not in a narrow way, But as we forget ourselves in this limited and narrowly defined way, we forget the self, as Dogen says. To forget the self, that means to forget the self as we believe ourself is or who we take ourselves to be. We forget that self. And then we become intimate with all things. We're here, we're present in contact with all things. So let's sit together for just a moment or two. May all beings awaken to their deepest wisdom. May all beings open their heart of love and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you for your attention. And so it's just turning 8.30. We have a half an hour now for walking. 